Eurosceptic and anti-immigration sentiments are attracting some support for fringe political groups across Ireland, but their electoral performances have been less than impressive. Welcome to The Dark State. I am John Mooney. Today we are discussing the far right. Today I am joined by Aoife Gallagher, an analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. Aoife is considered an expert on extremism and disinformation. Aoife, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Aoife, there's very little public awareness of the far right in Ireland, and particularly the security threat that they pose to democracy and also to security. Can we just begin, maybe, can you explain what the far right is and what political views they avow? Yeah, yeah, sure. So, I mean, far-right like philosophies tend, tend to be fairly complex. Um, and, I mean, you do notice on social media that the, the term far-right gets kind of thrown around to describe anyone that kind of holds views that are maybe considered slightly conservative. And, you know, that's definitely not an accurate way to use the, the term. Um, but in general, um, you could you could definitely say that a lot of, a lot of far-right groups and movements tend to be driven by an extreme form of nationalism. And this nationalism is often rooted in xenophobia or, in, or the exclusion of minority groups. So it's really a kind of nationalism that is defined by either ethnicity or race or religion. And you can see like how certain tropes that are used by far-right groups in Ireland, such as, you know, Ireland belongs to the Irish. You know, it, it may be a harmless term as such, but it's a very old-fashioned idea of what it means to be Irish. They, they tend, these groups tend to not recognize, you know, people of color, as being, you know, legitimate Irish citizens, they tend to not recognize people of certain religions um, as, as being considered Irish. Um, so kind of in general, they see multiculturalism, I suppose, as a, as a threat to our way of life. Um, and you can take, for example, you know, the Lord Mayor of Dublin, Hazel Chu. She is consistently the target of far-right groups. And she is a woman who was born and raised in Dublin. But because she doesn't fit their very strict definition of what it means to be ethnically Irish. You know, they believe that she's a threat, and so they, they target her for that. Um, and we're all also seeing these kind of groups, I suppose, targeting members of the LGBT community and attempting to link LGBT lifestyles to pedophilia, which is the tried and tested method, honestly, by the far right and has been used by them for years. Um, so they're kind of the main forms of them. And then you have... Um, I suppose other elements like a far-right movement would also include kind of an opposition to liberal democracies. And this is where far-right movements tend to kind of overlap with fascist movements. And again, fascism is another word that's kind of thrown around quite a bit without people really truly knowing the meaning of it. And although fascism is, you know, it is defined by this kind of ultra-nationalism and xenophobia, a lot of fascist movements also tend to believe in a kind of authoritarian or totalitarian state or dictatorship. So not all far-right movements can, can be considered wholly fascist, but they do tend to incorporate elements of fascism in them, let's just say. Have these groups a significant presence in Ireland? I mean, what what is the profile of the people who are getting involved? We would say that typically men would be more involved in far-right movements than women. Um, but that's also kind of shifting a bit, I suppose, in recent years. And we are seeing more women kind of coming into the Irish movement as well. Um, and then I think that one of the biggest parts of what's making this movement grow is the online movement that kind of goes along with it. There are, you know, a lot of communities online that 
you know, celebrate white supremacist and xenophobic and really misogynistic views. Like they're they're literally celebrated for for thinking these things on these platforms, and it gives people a sense of community that something like this is actually acceptable. And so I think that this kind of element of it is bringing a lot of younger people into the movement. And, you know, that that is certainly like a, a worrying part of it we're seeing. You know, you see kind of there's countless stories really of, of people being radicalized online by falling into kind of algorithm-fueled rabbit holes on, on platforms like YouTube. And then you have, you know, a number of mass shooters that have used these online message boards to post their manifestos before committing terrible, terrible crimes. So, I mean, it is kind of well-documented in the past couple of years that there is a radicalization pathway online um, that tends to kind of, I suppose, favor a, a younger kind of group of people. Um, I think if you're talking about class background, again, it's, you know, I wouldn't like to, you know, strictly define it as one thing or another, but I do think that these kind of movements tend to attract people with a, 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 a big dislike for the elite class, I suppose, and kind of pretty anti-establishment beliefs. And I suppose you would find that more prevalently in working class backgrounds as opposed to middle class backgrounds. But I do think that it does kind of overlap. I think this movement kind of does stretch along um, a lot of the social classes as well, yeah. Aoife, that's really interesting. Do, do you believe that the rise of the far right or its increasing presence in Ireland is part of a much wider issue across Europe and the world? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you don't really have to look that far to see that far-right movements are becoming more popular kind of across the world. I mean, take the US, for example. I mean, you know, Donald Trump's presidency has really given far-right movements and groups a sense of entitlement. He's refused on multiple terms to, to, to really disavow these movements, and this has really found the blame of the racial tensions, I suppose, that we're seeing in the US at the moment. And it's given far-right groups a sense, there, a sense of purpose. Um, and a lot of the language and, and, and online tactics that you see being used by U.S. groups are also being used in an Irish context. So it's almost like they're importing U.S. culture wars into Ireland through the use of the Internet in a lot of ways. Um, and then you have, I mean, if you look at Europe, there are far-right parties kind of rising all over the place. In Germany, you have the, the AFD, the Alternative for Deutschland. Um, in Spain, I do believe the Vox Party are possibly the third biggest party in Parliament at the moment. Um, and then, I mean, yeah, it kind of is all over. There are, you know, parties in Hungary, Austria, Italy, Sweden, Poland, and they're all kind of gaining traction, I suppose. And then, you know, if you look outside of Europe, of course, the election of, of Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil, who is a very, very vocal opponent of same-sex marriage and really does threaten the lives of LGBT people in Brazil. Like, that was another kind of, you know, indicator that these kind of far-right, um, you know, political philosophies, I suppose, are on the rise kind of globally, yeah. This is incredible because in many ways uh, the public in general are unaware of these groups and don't encounter it unless they they Mm. come across the material online. Um, And that brings me to, uh, I suppose, a related subject. And I'm very curious to um, hear your views on whether you believe the rise of these groups in Ireland is in any way connected to the proliferation of conspiracy theories online. Mm. I'm talking about conspiracies like QAnon or many of the other anti-vaccine movements that are yeah. seem to be growing and uh, developing a, a significant support base online, albeit, but it, nonetheless they're there. Do, do, do you believe there is any connection between the rise of the far right and these uh, conspiracy theories that are manifesting themselves? Um, yeah, I mean, definitely. I, it's, 
historically known that far right movements and conspiracy theories tend to go hand in hand. There's kind of there's no denying that, and they have they have gone hand in hand for decades. And I mean, we can go back to I mean, in the early 1900s, there was a you know there was a document published in Russia, and it was called the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And what the document purported to be were the notes of meetings that took place between Jewish elders in which they talk about their plans for world domination, for controlling wealth and controlling the media, etc. Um, now, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion has been proven countless times to be a false and highly plagiarized document. Um, but nonetheless, it spread across Europe and the US in the 1900s and kind of positioned Jews as being part of some kind of a global, evil, sinister plot. And it ultimately formed one of the bases for the crimes of the Holocaust. So in a lot of ways, this document is the basis for a lot of conspiracy theories that, that, that a lot of people don't even really know are rooted in that kind of real old anti-Semitism. Um, and these are ones that are kind of, as you say, bubbling up now, like the idea of a new world order. This is a conspiracy theory that's been around for decades as well, but it's certainly rising to prominence more with COVID now. And it's kind of the idea, again, that a small group of elites are secretly planning to take over the world with like a, a totalitarian government. Um, and that idea is very, very rooted in the same ideas that came out of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And, you know, similarly, I suppose, with QAnon, you know, that that's kind of the, the same idea. There's a, a small group of elites that control the world. But QAnon adds on the extra part to it, which is that people also think that these elites are engaging in satanic rituals and child sacrifice. And again, that element of the conspiracy theory, it comes from an old anti-Semitic theory called blood libel. And that, you know, used to falsely accuse Jews of murdering Christian children. So in a lot of ways, there's kind of nothing new under the sun when it comes to the conspiracy world. A lot of these conspiracies have been touted by far-right groups for years, and they're kind of simply adapted to suit the modern age as such. But then... You know, when we're talking about, you know, COVID, I suppose, the conspiracies in the time of COVID, you know, a lot of modern conspiracy theories also tend to rise from really kind of big and shocking world events. So if you look at, you know, the killing of JFK or the moon landing or 9-11, you know, there's, there's always kind of conspiracies that bubble up around these things. So I think, you know, if there weren't conspiracies going on around COVID, I think it would probably be a bit strange, to be honest. Um, but I also think that there's a lot of misunderstanding about why people are kind of getting into these conspiracy theories. And there's a lot of people throwing around the term crazy and, you know, uh, you know, just kind of awful terms really to describe people that are, that are really just going through a very hard time. I do think that a lot of these people that believe in these conspiracies are, are victims of the infodemic as such. You know, you have to kind of think that, you know, I'll just give you kind of an example, I suppose. I mean, if you're someone who has, lost their job and lost their livelihood and you maybe haven't, you don't know anyone who's been affected by COVID, so you, you haven't actually seen the effects of the virus, but what you are seeing are the knock-on effects of everything that's happening around you to do with the lockdowns. You're seeing this having, a, you know, an adverse effect on your, maybe your relationship and your kids and your family and your happiness. And then you go online and you see, you know, you might join a Facebook group and you see a video of, an empty hospital car park and someone kind of saying something sinister about why this car park is empty during a pandemic. And then maybe you come across a post that looks kind of, you know, looks kind of legit to you. You're not sure, but it looks legit. And it says something to do with coronavirus and Wuhan and it's dated in 2016. And, you know, there's a whole big spiel next to the image that tells you that 
the virus is a plot and that isn't real and that masks are a muzzle and they actually, you know, show the government that people are compliant. And then you read some kind of a pseudo legal post that makes it sound like you have the right not to wear a mask. And then, you know, before you know it, you're arguing with some young lad in Centra who politely asks you to wear a mask because the thing is, is that you truly think that you know what's going on. And, you know, it is, it's a very, very powerful movement. And I think that what a lot of people don't realize is that it really plays into people's confirmation biases. It plays into people's trust in their government and trust in their institutions. And this is kind of where the overlap, I suppose, with conspiracy theories on the far right, kind of they, they, how they go hand in hand because, the, you know, they are almost the far right's greatest weapon because what they do is they break down people's belief in democratic institutions. And we kind of just have to accept the fact that there are a lot of people out there who have become very disillusioned with the institutions that we've relied upon for years because of years of stories of corruption and unethical behavior and scandals. And this has all led to just diminishing trust in the government as a whole. And it makes people believe, it makes it a lot easier for people to believe in those conspiracy theories, I suppose. And this is happening all over the world. You know, far right movements are really taking advantage of the pandemic to push these theories. And it's been pretty well reported now, I have to say this year, um, you know, the fact that the, the people that are involved in organizing the anti-mask and anti-lockdown movement in Ireland are far-right activists. And, you know, you know, and I suppose you also have to say that not everyone that goes to those marches holds far-right beliefs, or not everyone that goes to those marches is a conspiracy theorist as such. Um, for the most part, a lot of those people are feeling scared and desperate, and they're being fed information that, you know, somehow makes them feel like they know what's going on in this crazy time. So that's what I mean in a lot of ways, that they are they are victims of this movement, really. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of how they're, they're, I'd say the, the overlap between conspiracies and far-right is just huge. Aoife, do you believe this movement is around to stay or will it fade away? Um, and what are your mm. thoughts on the likely path of this political philosophy? Um is it likely to see an increase in support? Is it likely to um, grow? I think that these kind of ideas and movements probably never truly go away completely. Um, I think that there always there always are going, there's always going to be groups of people who blame society's problems on certain classes of people or on minority groups and people that are really opposed to like liberal changes. I suppose in the world. Um, you know, as you kind of said at the start, none of the, the far-right candidates were successful in this year's election. But the pandemic may change that because there are a number of those candidates that have made a name for themselves this year. So I think, you know, seeing what kind of comes out of the next election and seeing if, if they have actually increased their popularity, that will be an indication that we'll know if, if you know, this is, you know, something that's going to keep going for a while, I suppose. Um but, you know, in saying that there are, like, I think that there are things that we can do to stop it growing. Um, you know, one of the main things that I think needs to be done is that we need to start regulating online platforms. And I'm not talking about censorship. I'm talking about trying to make um, online platforms safe for the users that use them. I mean, the platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter, they have proven over and over again that they don't, that they can't control what happens on their platforms and that they don't really have much of a desire to make them safe spaces and they just continue to profit off disinformation and radicalization and eroding trust in democracies, I suppose, internationally. So 
regulating those platforms and kind of make it like making it that spreading disinformation is not that easy or there's some kind of a deterrent to it that has to be something that definitely has to be done and then i think we have to work to build up our trust in our institutions and particularly in the media like the media gets you know as you know yourself john you know the media gets a hard rap for reporting on uh, like anything that um that the far right thinks you, you know we're immediately branded as you know puppet masters and people that are that are covering up the truth and things like that um but the only way to counter a whole lot of bad information is with loads of good information and i think that the media has taken such a beating in the past 20 years that there needs to be a lot of investment in the media and in independent media to make sure that we have a, like a large number of voices that are that are you know and expert voices and people that actually have expert opinion about things and are not just kind of you know, pretending to have an expert opinion online and kind of trying to persuade people in that way. Um, and then the last thing I think that we could do is, it's, um, all, a lot of this comes down to education. And, you know, I don't have kids, but I don't know how I would feel about handing, you know, if I did have kids handing my teenager a phone and having them have uncontrolled access to the internet. I think that children definitely need to be educated on the dangers of the online world. Um, and kind of similarly, they need to be educated on media literacy. Um, you know, I often think that when I was growing up, you know, my parents bought the Sunday newspapers, you know, the, the, the news was on the radio a couple of times a day or on the TV a couple of times a day. We had, you know, we knew where to find the news. And I kind of feel like that doesn't really happen anymore because everyone just gets their news on their phone. And I think that one of the key things that you, like that people need to learn is how to identify whether a source online is a reliable news source or if it's, you know, John Joe down the road who's trying to convince you of their mad opinion. Um, so as much as, you know, there, there definitely is a pathway for the, for this kind of, you know, movement to grow, I think that, you know, we really need to concentrate on what we can do to stop it growing, to be honest. Is there a security yeah. aspect to this that's sometimes overlooked? Yeah, I mean, I think that in general, far-right movements, they, they do threaten the lives of a lot of minority groups in this country. Like, I think that any person of color in Ireland, anyone who isn't heterosexual, anyone who practices a different religion, like, I think that, you know, these kind of far-right groups tend to, they tend to make hate acceptable and they use freedom of speech as a shield almost for their bigotry and intolerance. And I think anyone that's been kind of the, the target of these kind of groups, like either online or on real or in real life, um, you know, they're, they're more than aware of the effects that they can have. And they are a serious effect. And I mean, you know, the, the far right will be, you know, they'll say, oh, liberals, you know, cry, crying liberal snowflakes, you know, you know, have their feelings hurt or whatever. And that's not what it's about. It's just about being a human being and being, you know, decent to each other at the end of the day. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, in general, they, they, these kind of movements do, do threaten kind of a, a lot of people's freedom. And then I suppose the other kind of threat that they would, imposed as well is you know we kind of mentioned this before but you know is this kind of way that they erode trust in democracy and i don't really think this can be understated to be honest because i like a lot of my work is focused on the u.s and i've been watching this kind of far-right rhetoric as it's moved from the very fringes of the internet you know four or five years ago to mainstream spaces within the u.s where you're finding like republican gop members that are now believing in the wild conspiracy theories. I mean, literally half, nearly half the population of the U.S. 
is convinced that Donald Trump won the election because of how easy it is to trick people into believing things online. And I mean, that just, you know, highlights how in the space of, you know, a short number of years, how movements like this can really erode people's trust in, you know, the foundations of their democracy. And then, you know, I suppose the last thing that I'd say about that is that, you know, the, the conspiracy theory rabbit hole is, it really is a, a dangerous thing, to be honest. It's, you know, from what I can see when people get into these conspiracy theories, they tend to fall further and further down the rabbit hole and it actually just kind of tends to get worse the further that you dive in. And I have seen this um, in the past couple of months in Ireland. You know, these maybe Irish anti-mask groups or Irish COVID denier Facebook groups, I suppose, that may have, you know, started off by touting kind of slightly anti-vax conspiracy theories and things like that. The people in these groups are now genuinely comparing for societal collapse. They're convinced that doomsday is coming. They're starting to believe in things like chemtrails, which is, you know, a kind of a conspiracy theory that I would put on, on kind of the, the further end of the conspiracy spectrum. So, you know, it's well, it's well known that if you believe in one conspiracy theory, you're more likely to believe in, in more than one. And I think that, you know, one of the, the things that kind of breaks my heart a little bit when I'm doing this kind of work is seeing posts online where people are, you know, they're talking about telling their kids their theories and, you know, spreading these messages to the next generation. That to me is a, a scary prospect. And that's why I think that the education part here is key. We really need to, you know, try and persuade people into letting them know that, you know, people like me or people like you, we're not lying to them. You know what I mean? Like we're actually just genuinely trying to tell them the truth and we don't have some kind of nefarious purpose behind us. Um, so they would really be the, the threats, I suppose, that I would see that would come from movements like this. And that concludes today's edition of The Dark State. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or post a review. I hope you will join us again next week.